Well, it's been a great couple of weeks back in Ohio, the heart of it all, as they call it, back with family and friends. It was great to see Grandma come home from the hospital after her stroke where they told her she had a 30% chance of survival. Uh, it was great to see many friends and relatives. We went to a 20-year class reunion. Only three guys from my class showed up. The rest were the ladies. I don't know what's up with guys, like if they're antisocial or what. But it was a good time. LeBron James kept texting me the whole time I was back there trying to talk me and my family to come back with him. I told him, LeBron, there's still disciples to make in Arizona. No, not one, not two, not three. You got to be a basketball fan to appreciate that. When he went down to Miami the first time, he said, we're not going to win one championship, not two, not three. But I told him, LeBron, we're going back, back home. Uh, but it is good to be back. And we're going to jump into Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5 this morning, and the main idea I want to get at is on this next slide. Because God is holy, he is set apart, he is altogether greater than us, he is completely righteous, he is set apart from sin. Because God is holy, I will live with reverence for him. To use a, a biblical word, a strong word that's not often preached these days, we're going to talk about the fear of God. It is a biblical concept. Romans describes a condition in our world that sometimes has crept into the church. There is no fear of God in their eyes. That's not a good place to be, and we're going to talk about that this morning. Sometimes there's confusion about what is the fear of God. I read a story this week about Teddy Roosevelt. He wasn't always the brave soldier that we read about in history. There's a story that his mom shared. His mom's name was, was Mitty. And he was afraid to enter this Madison Square church in his neighborhood. He would never go in there on his own. That's how scared he was as a child. And his, his mother asked him, why won't you go in this place? What are you afraid of? And he said, it's something they keep talking about called the zeal. And she said, what, what's the zeal, Teddy? And he said, I don't know. I imagine that it's some kind of alligator or dragon. And he imagined they would hide in the corners of the, the church. And so she decided to look up the word zeal in the Bible because he had heard him say something about it that, that scared him. And she got to John 2.17, which says, the zeal of your house has eaten me up. <laughs> he, he was a little bit confused about this idea of uh, this zeal, uh, maybe even the fear of God. It is a confusing subject. But to bring some clarity to it, I, I want to read you something that a man named Kevin Miller wrote that I think clears it up about as well as anything I've read. When he talked about the fear of God, he said this. He said, it's the kind of fear I feel at the Grand Canyon. He said, where I was drawn to the amazing beauty but I also felt a realistic fear at the danger because people who acted foolishly near it have died. So that's a, a great summary of the fear of God. There's this awe and this wonder and there's this beauty. And yet there's this healthy sense that those who are foolish around it can die. We know it's an Old Testament concept. I don't have to argue that with you guys today. Uh, Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
Yeah, all of us know it's all through the book of Proverbs, but there's this lie that's crept into the church. It says, now that we're saved, now that we're children of God and Jesus, we can do away with this fear of the Lord idea. But I want to show you something. 2 Corinthians 5.11, Paul writes this to a church that he calls brothers. He says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. At the end of the book, Revelation says, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. First Peter 2.17 says, Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. We're going to explain more what that means near the end of our message, but for now, let me say this. Some of you are, who know your Bible are saying, but what about... What about verses like in Romans 8 that says the spirit of God is not a spirit of fear. It enables us to call God daddy. What about where John says perfect love casts out fear? Is that true? Yes, it is. But we've got to understand the context and the sense of what they're talking about. They're talking about the fear of being cast into eternal punishment away from our father. Once we come to salvation in Jesus, that's a done deal. He will never turn away those who have come to him in Jesus. But that does not mean that we should not have this healthy fear of him as we live our lives here. Because as a loving father, he will discipline even those he loves. Ask my boys. (laughs) They know I love them. They know I'm always going to be daddy. But they know if they continue to disobey me, there's going to be consequences. And that's why sometimes when they do something they know they shouldn't be doing, I see them do that. His dad or mom watching. The fear of God needs to be an integral part of our lives. Because God is holy, I will live with reverence for him. And we're going to see this in this Old Testament passage, and then we're going to bring it home for today. For two groups of people, for those who don't know Jesus yet, and for those who do. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. While you turn there, I'm going to set the stage. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at this great king, Nebuchadnezzar. Last week, or two weeks ago, Pastor John shared about how his pride led him to being turned into this animal-like creature that lived in the field for seven years, had to eat like an animal. And it wasn't until he humbled himself and acknowledged that God is God that, that he was restored. Well, today we find ourselves... Uh, 23 years after his death. Nebuchadnezzar has died. He died in about 562 BC. There were several kings in between, some executions, some different things. And now we get to the place where we believe his grandson, Belshazzar, is on the throne. It's 539 BC, 23 years after Nebuchadnezzar's death. Some time has gone by. And I want to look at three ways that Belshazzar left behind the fear of God, the reverence of God in his life. And I want us to evaluate as we look at each of the three ways he did it, am I doing that in my own life? The first thing Belshazzar had that we have to be aware of in our lives was a false sense of security. And we're going to unpack that after we read the first four verses. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. 
Kings at this time loved to have parties, not only to invite the people in, but to show their wealth and to show their prowess. A thousand people, they found banquet halls. Archaeologists have large enough to host this kind of party. This was a big party. He drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Where'd they come from? God's temple, Yahweh's temple. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And we'll slide over just to verse four. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I want to stop there for just a moment. History tells us that as this party was happening, there was an army of Medo-Persians surrounding the city of Babylon. And Belshazzar knew it. They had been sitting there for a long time in siege of the city, but there was this attitude in Babylon that said, this is Babylon. At some walls, this sounds unbelievable, but I read it several places that were 300 feet tall <laughs> around the city. They had 100 fortified bronze gates. They had a river that flowed through the city from north to south, so they had all the water they needed to survive, and they believed they had 20 years' worth of food in there to survive. There was this pride that came with that, this false sense of security. In fact, there was one time Babylon was surrounded, historians tell us, we don't know if it was this time or another, that people inside the city actually yelled out at the Persian army, why don't you go home? You won't conquer this city until mules are able to give birth. If you know anything about mules, they're saying this ain't going to happen. This is Babylon. He knew this was going on and he's having a party. He had a false sense of security. He also had a false sense of security about what was going on with his gods and the God of Jerusalem. Because what was he doing? When he brings in these gold items that were used in the sacred worship of Yahweh, he's not just thinking these would be nice to drink out of. It's a public way of saying our gods are greater than this God because obviously we can't conquer that city. So we're going to make a show of it. Even though his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had written edicts praising, or his grandfather had written edicts praising the God of Jerusalem, Belshazzar had come a, a long ways from that. He's like profaning, blaspheming the name of God with this false sense of security. Before we move on, I want to ask you, is it possible that any of us have that in our lives? We look around and maybe we're making a sinful decision. Maybe we're walking a path that God has made it clear to us. You are not to go down this path. You are not to do this, to say this, to go there. Yet we look around and say, hey, right now the bills are paid. I got my job. I got my car. I got all this stuff. I'm okay. I, I'm not seeing any consequences right now, so I'm just going to continue on down this sinful path. Learn the lesson of Belshazzar. Beware that false sense of security. Let's go to verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and rode on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. 
The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. This is the ruler of what was once the most powerful empire in the world. And his knees are literally knocking together. You can imagine the party going on, the waiters serving food, the people drinking, and all of it coming to a screeching halt as they they see this human hand begin to write on the wall. That last line, every time I read it, because it's, we, we have kids at home now, and I grew up on it. I always imagined Shaggy and Scooby-Doo, the, the knees knocking together. <laughs> but this is a king who moments before was blatantly defying this God. Now, now look at him. And I want you to watch what happens. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, diviners, and he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple a royal color, and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. Is this like deja vu or what? How many times have we been through this with Nebuchadnezzar? Call in my guys. They can't do it. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. Now, some of you might say, why couldn't they read the words? Why couldn't they interpret it? Well, in both Hebrew and Aramaic, which is, Aramaic was kind of the lingua franca of the world that day, only the consonants were provided when they were written down. You had to insert the vowels, and there are multiple vowels that could have been inserted in these words that would have made them mean different things. They didn't know which vowels were supposed to go in there because they didn't write them. So they're looking at them saying, We don't know what this means. We can't do this because they didn't write it. God did. So go on to the next verse. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. (laughs) I don't think she knew what was coming either. If she did, she wouldn't have said that. But she she said, don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, actually grandfather, father's used in kind of a general way, like an ancestor, just like Abraham is the, the father of the Jews. He was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel whom the king called Belteshazzar was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. I want to cut through all that to say something amazing here. Kings always know their history. They learn it as children from their ancestors. Surely Belshazzar was taught about all the interactions between his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel. All the ways Daniel had been able to do things that no one else could in the power of his God. All the edicts Nebuchadnezzar had written about this God. But you know what? He has distanced himself from Daniel. So much so that this queen has to introduce him again. This is who this man is. And that's the second thing 
that I see that Belshazzar did that we need to be aware of. He deliberately distanced himself from godly counsel. He, he pushed Daniel away. He knew he was there. He had been reigning for some time, and yet he had never consulted him. Why? My guess is his pride. Daniel doesn't serve my God. Yeah, he helped my grandfather, but I got this. And so I want us to look at our own lives. When, when we talk about having a healthy fear of God, that first one is beware that false sense of security. The second one is have you distanced yourself from godly counsel? That's a red flag. If you're pushing away people that tell you things that are true, that are biblical, only because you don't want to hear it, only because you don't want to receive it, only because you want to go your way and not God's, that's a red flag. Now let's go on. We're going to see something else, the, the third characteristic of the three. He forgot or ignored the past, what had happened with his grandfather. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? Now check this out. Daniel was probably 82 years old at this point. When we first saw him in Babylon, he was probably 15 or 16. Talk about faithfulness over the long haul. He now comes in as an elderly man. Belshazzar says, I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now, I've heard that you're able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king. You can keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. There's a couple things going on here. One, Daniel's not in it for the money. We've known that this whole time. He's not in it for the position, even though God has blessed him with high position at time. He's in it for God. But I think there's more. He also knows what's coming. <laughs> and he knows these things aren't going to mean a hill of beans in a few, in a few hours. But he says, nevertheless, I'll read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. And then he gives him a little schooling as to why this writing happened in the first place. He says, your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. See, tell him, Belshazzar, who gave your grandfather his power? God did. Next slide. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. This is like a good review for Belshazzar. You remember what happened to your grandfather? Now watch the application. But you 
Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Though you knew all this. He ignored the past. And you've all heard the the familiar quote, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. He lived that out. He, of all people, should have known better. Should have known better. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. That's something Nebuchadnezzar and all of his pride never even dared to do because he'd seen this mighty Yahweh in action. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, you drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. And here's the key of this whole chapter. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. You knew this, but you ignored it. You forgot to serve the honor the God who holds your life in his hands. This is the third one I want to talk about. Is there any way in your life that you're ignoring lessons from the past? I always think there are a few ways we can learn things. The, the easiest is when we just read the Bible and say, hey, this is what God says, so I'm going to obey it. That's one level of learning. And it's the easiest way. It's not always easy to follow God, but it's the, the easiest when it comes to uh, the consequences of our sin in our lives. Hey, it's in there. This is what it says. I'm going to follow it. There's another way, and it's to learn from other people that have made mistakes. This was the option that Belshazzar had. He could have looked at Nebuchadnezzar and said, hey, I've seen where this road leads. I'm not going down it. The third way is to learn the hard way. (laughs) We all have that choice as we go through our lives, and Belshazzar chose the third. So before we get on to the actual writing on the wall, I want you to ask yourself, Is there any way you're ignoring lessons that God has taught others or you yourself in your past? He showed you clearly. Have you ignored it or forgotten it? Now let's go on to look at this writing on the wall. Daniel says, because of all this, God sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Meanie, meanie, tekel, parson. Obviously, we've had the vowels added in. We can see this is our English transliteration of it. Oh, on a side note here, you'll find this all the time. People that know nothing about Belshazzar or Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar or Babylon will often use the phrase, the writing on the wall. This is right where it came from. You'll find that with other things, the apple of his eye. Uh, so you can see the, the influence the Bible's had on culture, even, even when folks don't know exactly where it came from. But Daniel says, here's what these words mean. And just to break, break it down, I, I talked about the confusion earlier. Mini, Tekel, and Perez, each of them with just the consonants could have been broken down two different ways. That's why they were confused. One way to look at it, that could have been mina, which is a, a monetary amount. Tekel could have been shekel, and Perez could have been half shekel. So it could have meant three monetary amounts, but Daniel knew that that was the wrong set of vowels. He knew what God wanted. It didn't mean mina, it meant many, meaning, which means numbered. 
And he tells him what this word numbered means. It was written twice, which meant it was certain. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. I want you to imagine this king sitting there in front of his thousand guests getting this message from the man of God. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel meant weighed. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Otherwise, you, you don't cut it. God has weighed you and you do not cut it. You've been found wanting. And Perez means divided. And Daniel explains it. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, so stark, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. I told you they were already camped around the city. Babylon thought they were impenetrable. What history tells us these Medes and Persians did, the the river flowed through the city through gates that were on the north and the south. And the level was high enough that Babylon was confident nobody could get in there without drowning. Well, what history tells us the Medes and Persians did in preparation for this this assault on Babylon as they re-diverted the river to another part of the, the country there, which brought the water level down to their knees. And they marched in these gates where the river ran through, climbed up the banks, and had their way in the city of Babylon. The city that thought, no way can anyone get in here, had been conquered. And you remember back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, that head of gold was not to last forever. There was going to be a midsection here of silver, and we see it taking place right here. Babylon only lasted from 605 to 539 B.C. as a prominent world empire. Medo-Persia took over this night from 539 to 331 B.C. God's promise, his prophecy had come true. Now, as we look at Belshazzar, and his lack of the fear of God and what it meant for him. As we look at the main idea, because God is holy, I will live with reverence for him. I want to look at the application for us today in two groups. First, there may be some in this room that have not yet made a personal decision to trust in Jesus Christ. To look at his death on the cross and say, that's what I need for my salvation. To look at his resurrection and say, yes, God accepted that on my behalf and trust in that. There are non-Christians possibly in the room. We need to be aware how God views us without Christ. Romans 3 says this in verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is God's assessment of those who don't know Jesus Christ. I know even as we read it, we wrestle with that because there's no one who does good. I I see people that don't know Christ do good things. This is not from a human perspective. This is from the perspective of a God who is perfectly holy, who says without Christ, all of our good works are like filthy rags. I know this is not popular. (laughs) This is what the word says. And Romans 1 says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Little lower it says, he's been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. See, often we want to jump to the salvation moment, but I don't, I don't think we can appreciate the friendship of God, the salvation of God, the intimacy we have with God as his children until we understand this, that this is where we are, where we were without Christ. When we understand that, it leaves us feeling desperate, leaves us feeling hopeless. Thank God Romans goes on. Romans 5 says, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless. See, that's our condition. When we have not come to Christ, we can't save ourselves. You can't get to heaven by going to church, helping your neighbor. Whatever list of things you've concocted, we are powerless. It says at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. You see how much more we appreciate that when we realize our standing before it happened? When you look at the cross and you see the separation between father and son for a moment because he had our sin upon him where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was because of you and me. That was the weight of that that dark moment. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, it's God's love that's everything. If he hadn't done that, we would still be powerless. Here's the hope. Since we have now been justified, that means made right by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? That's the good news. And if you're here today and you haven't made that decision and you're, you're feeling a healthy reverence for God when you know how he looks at you, this is the answer. For while he is holy, he is also amazingly loving as we sing at the beginning. Your friendship is intimate. That song expressed this awe that, wow, you are my friend? And we don't get that until we realize that, until we came to Jesus. It was his wrath that was upon us. So if you're a non-Christian here this morning, See, what it means to live in reverence for God because he's holy is to acknowledge I'm a sinner and I need your loving gift of Jesus. And that's what we're here to offer. None of us in this church who have come to Jesus are perfect. We're all broken. I sin daily, just ask my wife. (laughs) But I have a savior. 
that took my sin upon himself and paid the price. And that's what we offer to all, all who come here. Now, I want to talk to the believers. You might be sitting there saying, okay, <laughs> I'm a believer. I'm off the hook with this fear of God thing. But listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He's talking about all the things that happened in the desert in the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, he says, I do not want you believers to be ignorant of the fact, he calls them brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. He's talking about their time in the wilderness. We're not going to get far into it, but here's where I want to go. Verse 6, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. You see what he's saying? He's saying when we read those stories, it needs to instill in us that same healthy fear of God's discipline. Verse 5 said, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. Verse 14, therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Let those words sink in. Paul is saying, let these things be lessons to us as God's children. Let's walk in his ways and avoid those consequences of sin. I want to close by talking about what are the results of fearing God? Belshazzar didn't. What are the results if we take this to heart? I want to go to something Jesus said. Matthew 10, he said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So you read that and you say, all right, which is it? Be afraid, don't be afraid. What are you saying, Jesus? And a couple men have summed it up well. Mark Batterson said this, the only God-ordained fear is the fear of God. And if we fear him, we don't have to fear anyone or anything else. I believe he was inspired by Oswald Chambers who said it this way years before. The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. You see, there's a beauty in the fear of God because it puts everyone and everything else in our lives in perspective. Fearing God is a beautiful thing because yes, he's holy and yes, he's powerful, but he also loves me and he knows the number of hairs on my head. And if I fear him, I don't have to live in fear of that neighbor, that coworker, that boss, this situation, whatever's going on, because my fear's put in the only place it belongs. Father, 
I come before you this morning admitting that this is an area in my life I need to grow in. And it makes me uncomfortable sometimes, even the subject, because I know I'm your child in Jesus, and I know he calls me friend, and, and I know I can call you father. I sometimes forget that even in the New Testament to the churches, you tell us to live in this holy fear of who you are. You see John the Apostle in Revelation 1 of your book, when he meets you in your glorified form, Jesus, he falls down on his face, and it's not till you reach down and comfort him and say it is I that he stood up. We've got to have that kind of awe of you in our lives again. Uh, please bring that. Some of us in this room this morning need encouraged. I pray that your awesomeness and your power and your control would encourage them. Uh, some of us need a real kick in the pants from you because we've left this reverence for you behind long ago. And we need to wake up, realize that, yes, you do love me, but you're holy. And because of that, I'll live in reverence of you and fear of you again. God, do what you want to do through your spirit this morning. I don't know where this application needs to land for each of us, but you do. I want us to take a moment and just process that. I want us to ask God, God, is this an area I need to grow in? It's healthy fear of God. It's healthy reverence. Ask him. I'm going to strip away any false sense of security. That's going to help you remember the lessons he's taught you. Asking if there's someone with godly counsel that you can invite back into your life to, to help you. We all need that. Hey, Father, I pray to you as we come back to a, a fear of you that it would inspire in us a deeper appreciation for your grace, for the cross. It's only awesome as we see it with that backdrop of what we deserve and what you gave us. That wash over us anew. And may it also give us a hunger as we look at your word and what it says about those who don't know you and how you see them. You love them. You sent your son for them, and yet you say there's no one righteous. You say your wrath is upon them. And you've left us here to take them the only way to shield themselves from that wrath. Your son. Open our eyes to those around us who need that. May this instill a hunger to go out and share that gospel. Help us not to be complacent. The people around us who haven't yet found this are not okay. In Jesus' name, amen.